Hi, and welcome to the Creative Me podcast. I'm your takeover host, Emily Utter, and today my guest is Shane Strachan, who is an Aberdeen-based writer and performer currently working on a novel about Bill Gibb, the Aberdeenshire-born fashion designer. Shane received a 2018 Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship from the Scottish Book Trust to work on this novel, and he's currently working on a spoken word film and exhibition linked with the project for the 2019 Look Again Festival. His recent publications include, nevertheless, for Muriel Sparks Centenary, and We Were Always Here, a 404 Inc. anthology of queer Scottish writing. His theatre work has been staged with Payne's Plough and the National Theatre of Scotland, including The Shelter, an Aberdeen bus shelter-inspired verbatim play that he spoke about the last time he was on the podcast. Welcome, Shane. Okay, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. It's nice to be interviewed by someone I know. Yeah. I I do know Aika, but I know you. Yes, very well, but we won't talk about that um, in a public space. Um, (laughs) um, So it's actually been almost 12 months to the day since you were on the podcast the last time. Um, I think it was like April 18th that you were on the last time. Look that up. Um, So why don't you tell us what you've been up to since then? last 12 months. Oh god, I can't have mine. <laughs> um, so I think we would have performed The Shelter just after that. So that was a play that was on talking about with Kate last time I was on the podcast and we performed it in The Lemon Tree. Since that point, uh, we've gone on to perform again with further development with the National Theatre Scotland and we did that here in the anatomy rooms recently in the City Move side and we, I think that was just last month, and alongside working on the theatre side of things, I also uh, received the Scottish British Trust Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship, which I don't remember if I'd spoke about it last time or not, if I'd been announced yet. But um, since that time, I've yeah, basically been working on a novel about Bill Gibb, uh, who's a fashion singer from Fraserburgh, where I grew up. Um, he died in 1988, and I was born in 1988, so I've been working on that novel, kind of learning a lot about the 60s, 70s and 80s. (laughs) So So did you know about him when you were younger? Yeah, I mean, there's a small um, exhibition in the local heritage centre, so I knew of him, and I knew that some of my family had kind of went to school around the same time as him. Because there's so few, well, there's I mean there's a few fair few people who are famous from Fraserburgh, but for varying reasons. <laughs> um, so it's nice that it's a positive person to celebrate, and um, so I had heard of him, but I've yeah since um, since the last time I was on the podcast, I've learned, come to learn a lot more. Okay, so that journey really started quite a long time ago, but I know that it also picked up around the time of your PhD because you had a story in your collection about Bill Gibbs so how has the novel grown from that it's yeah I guess during the PhD I was experimenting with different styles of short stories and with the Bill Gibbs story and another one I was looking at kind of real life stories as as an influence on um, writing about the northeast of Scotland so that was kind of the seed of of the novel in a sense that when I wrote it and a lot of people kind of 
said, oh, it just feels like this is a bigger story than just a short story. So in a way, it probably failed as a short story mm -hmm. because it was trying to say too much um, and maybe didn't quite balance out just making it very kind of linear and to the point because it's really hard to do that with someone um, when it's based on their real life and you kind of find it so much interest in little things about them that kind of you want to put in to build up the sense of a real person. So that I kind of that that I wanted to work on it for a while, and I had kind of been looking at bits and pieces um, between then, which would have been about 2012, 13, to now, which oh my god, I can't believe it's been that long since I did my <laughs> PhD, God. Um, and so I was just looking for like opportunity. I was kind of scared to commit to write to work on another big project because I'd kind of worked on a novel before that, and I just know how hard it is to kind of get work out there to or to even finish it mm -hmm. so uh, getting the fellowship kind of gave me that space and time but it was a third like felt thing like the fellowship or thing like it that I applied for um so I kept I mean it was basically like my last ditch attempt mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I would have kept trying after that point um but it gave me yeah a month's writing time in France and also kind of gave me that the kind of confidence to say this is what I'm working on and that I will do this and it, to then work with other folk and gain access to research archives and things. I mean, once once I had the fellowship in place, it was a lot easier to get people on board and on side with it. Being mm -hmm. taken kind of validated it. Yeah, 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 being taken as a serious project. So a lot has happened with the project in the last year. What, if I didn't have the fellowship, it would probably still be in limbo with as an idea that I would like to do someday. But... I think because I work in theatre and because I usually work in the short story form, I'm always getting pulled and distracted by those forms, and that's still happening yet with theatre especially, that there's a lot more opportunities there to get your work in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. A novel is a really big risk, and it's still, you know, it still you know, keeps me up at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have. You know, yes, I know well. what that feels like. Okay. Um, so... I know you've said before that you were not so much struggling, but really having to think about how you were going to write about this real person. Mm -hmm. um, so what has it been like, you know, going through those archives, looking up, you know, the real facts and figures, um, and then trying to put that into a, at least a creatively fictional context? Mm. I think what I found is that there are no facts and very few figures <laughs> to have at hand. I mean, the archives I've been looking through, a lot of it is newspaper articles, and they actually all tell very different stories, okay. often on the same things, yep. with the wrong ages, the wrong dates, the wrong places, and you just start to realise how much of what you read is actually incorrect and infactual. And mm -hmm. There's been two books published on Bill Gibbs' fashion, from a fashion perspective, and art, kind of art books, and they're great, but they, they actually contradict each other in places. Right. Um, and I can see why, because going through the archive, actually, actually a lot of the time, they, the, the same sources they would look at as what I'm looking at, and nothing quite adds up. But you've met members of his family now, yeah. so did that kind of shed light on things that you're maybe getting yeah. multiple versions of? That's what's been really great, is that the family, I've been able to speak to his family, and I saw have other folk working on the previous books on him, but I think because they were looking at the factual stuff, they had to really limit themselves to just focusing on the clothes and focusing on that side of the story. Whereas I've been able to look at things in more of a personal sense. 
um, which is can be tough. You know, I, I mean, if someone wants to say it, they want to write a book about your brother, like you're going to start to instantly sort of feel a bit of anxiety or mm-hmm. um, territorial about. as well. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. But they've been really welcoming and open to what I'm doing. Um, but they, I've had to be clear from the outset. You know, this is a creative take on his life. It's not fact, and I don't want to anyone to think that I'm actually, you know, saying this is definitely what happened. I've been working a lot with collage and, and taking the text and just kind of playing with with um, newspaper articles and then turn them into poems. Mm-hmm. And I've also been working on kind of putting two versions of the same story side by side or like playing around with that sense of, you know, what's the real story and... And with speaking of people about him, all, they'll say themselves, I can't actually remember what happened. Mm-hmm. I'll ask them, you know, did this happen? It was written in one of the articles said he, he hitchhiked to, to um, art school from, from Fraserburgh, which is quite a far distance to go to London mm-hmm. from Fraserburgh, hitchhiking. And they're like, no, that, that's not true. Um, not as far as we remember. But then also there's some of it could be, you know, stories that he or his publicist made up mm-hmm. to kind of give this fairy tale story to mm-hmm. his to, that could have been part of his brand. That, I mean, yeah. not in the way that we would think of branding now, but that could have been what his publicist was doing. Like, you just can't know. So Cultivating an image, that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. And I think there, even when he chose not, he maybe didn't want that to happen, New, media journalists are looking for that kind of story because they want to make things, you know, rags to riches and this and that. But, I mean, he... His, it is a great story in the fact he was a, he was from a farming background and mm-hmm. went into fashion and it just you just can't see it coming like the, the kind of the set of circumstances that led to that even I've completed writing about his childhood years and his student years and even just that story to me is just fascinating mm-hmm. in terms of the pathway to to work in fashion coming from the same background I'm more from a fishing background but I know how hard it was to convince family and um and folk that I grew up with that I sh- I w- that being a writer wasn't a daft thing and that was just to be a writer imagine a farmer's son uh, try to do that in the 50s 60s so it's um yeah it's it's been it's been you've been really interested it's really made me think about how we tell stories and I think that I think a lot of fiction is exploring that right now and a lot of theatre is about look at I mean Netflix series looking at real life stories mm. Bohemian um, Rhapsody, and yeah, uh, was like the Elton John one as well. The Queen, like, uh, so much of what we're looking at, and so much more of the stories we're telling right now are based on real stories. Mm-hmm. But I think that, for me, it's important to also make it clear that it's a creative thing. So the more I'm being more overt with it, saying this is real life sources, the more I'm actually also playing with it on the page that makes it obvious that's the case. So mm-hmm. um, it's a creative thing for me. It's really, yeah, I think the collage thing excites me and it's made me really think about how that's what I'm always doing when I'm writing I'm actually taking bits and pieces from real life and from things I've read and I'm collaging them into something new nothing's really new mm-hmm. um, as we you know, post-modernist anxieties are in, <laughs> it, like everything's recycled but actually embracing that and saying that um, that's and realising that's how I've always told stories in mm-hmm. a way so yeah. and so you've drawn inspiration obviously then from like having grown up in the same area coming from a similar background but were there other 
sort of creative inspirations that helped you kind of approach the project, like other books or films or biographies or autobiographies? Um, or have you kind of been figuring it out as you go? Yeah, figuring it out as a go in a lot of ways. Listening to other people's stories within my family, like asking them about their upbringing. I think it's been really... I mean, I think I actually I've tried to make sure that I don't put too much of myself into the story and my own kind of journey or experiences of growing up because it, it, the town I grew up in was about double the size of the town he grew up in. Mm-hmm. Like it expanded so quickly mm-hmm. and he was from a rural background and the, the language is slightly different and the, even just the little things you think, like, I, I had some of the poems that I've, I've read as part of the book passed by a reader who is older than me and they picked out, you know, we wouldn't have said that word at that time and mm-hmm. you know, or someone from that class wouldn't have said that word at the time and it's a, so it's a newspaper reviewer and so on. So just being aware that I actually don't have that. No, I really do. It's, it made me have to really rely on other people mm-hmm. to make it authentic and I'm very aware that to some people it will never be authentic enough if that's what they're looking for but I hope that they realise that that's kind of part of what I'm trying to do is say that this is my version of the story. It can't be the right story. It's not correct. Um, so, yeah, speaking of other people, has been a big part of it, not just as family. Um, I watched some great documentaries. My favourite one probably was about Ozzy Clark, who was one of Bill Kipp's contemporaries at the time. There was a really good BBC documentary, which I think is all on YouTube. And... It has quotes from his own autobiography that he wrote, uh, I think in the 90s, not long before he was stabbed to death by his young male lover, as all fashion designers were in the 90s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a pretty tough, kind of, like a similar kind of, maybe sort of working class upbringing then going into fashion fashion unexpectedly, but at that time in the 60s where that became a possibility when it wasn't before, thanks to tuition fees being free and so on and suddenly in 1962 so he there's a lot of parallels can be drawn but he's a much darker Mm. kind of person he he struggles with drugs and his um his but his writing is so poetic and rich Mm -hmm. and it's it's like the quotes from the book that is performed in the in the, the documentary is really hard hitting but also just sounds like clockwork orange or something it's mm-hmm. just really like unexpected and you just could tell like, a creative mindset that's put together and so that yeah things like that i still need to watch the alexander mcqueen documentary it's just okay. coming out of flicks so that's like, yeah <laughs> that's true I've had, I've heard a lot of people <laughs> thank <talk>. you netflix <laughs> <laughs> he, he could see influences of kind of what gibb did in the 60s um on McQueen's style and Galliano, who both studied at St Martin's, which is the same place that they went to, in terms of mixing different periods, telling a story, um, but also being wearable and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm saying all this thing about fashion, like I know what I'm talking about. I've learned a lot about fashion in the <laughs> last year, and that's I mean that's another part of it. I've been working with students at Grace um, and researching from them how they learn fashion which has been really important for the shooting years because I could go read up on it but I think I've just seen it and getting a sense of what it's like to be in an art school and um, what how tough it is I guess to adjust to learning something yeah it just kind of reminded me a lot about how naive and how um, yeah how much you do learn during those 
undergraduate years, mm-hmm. and I just made me really think that how much of a shock it would have been for Gibb to to go from the farming background, and he almost quit a few times when he went to London, and at nineteen years old, and and so yeah, there, it's been a lot about trying to actually look at what people really do in real life as well as not just sort of documentary books that side of things, but the two books on Gibb are great, like um, Fashion and Fantasy by Ian Webb, and also a book by the head of Dark Colour in Aberdeen, Christian Rue, which she wrote, um, uh, could accompany an exhi- a couple of exhibitions that have happened. So they've been really good, yeah, good starting points to just get my head around the story, but I just realised there's so much more to the story before and after the kind of main period where Gibb was known, which is kind of from 1967 to nine, late 1970s, this big kind of career moment, but around the sides of that, there's so much going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you mentioned the work that you're doing with students at Grey's. Is that like a collaborative project? Yeah. Um, I was always going to get in touch with them and ask if I could come along and, and kind of... And, but what was great is that actually it's kind of led to another project in a sense. So they, when I did get in touch about coming in and researching, they, they said oh, it would be great for a third year to use this as their industry project and to create clothes that were influenced, influenced mm. by Bill Gibbs. So I've been kind of dropping in in the last semester before Christmas. They were, um, I was dropping in now and again, basically to see the different development stages from sort of the ideas, they, the things that inspired Matt Gibbs' work and then how that's influenced their work. And a lot of it's so vastly different from what Gibb would have done or but just you can see just once you once you know Gibb's work you know where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And, have they been uh, using any of your writing as inspiration for that? Or? Yeah. I gave them a couple of poems at the start and um just to give and I, I gave them a talk as well at the start just to give an overview of some images and I read a couple of poems at that point. And then I'm actually working with two of them closely now because we're working together on an exhibition um, for Look Again which is actually going to be a spoken word film. So in the novel, I've turned, instead of writing just what happened at his fashion shows, I've actually written poems because I just think it, it captures better the drama and the music and the kind of the lushness of the language associated with fashion and clothing mm-hmm. that an image could do, but I'm, I know I'm not creating a... I guess it was trying to also distinguish what why am I writing this book and how is it different from... The other couple of books that have been done and given, they can just show the work. Mm-hmm. But why is it necessary to have it in this form? Yeah, yeah. And how can it be different? How can it be something worthwhile on its own right? So the poems I'm um, performing six of them in a spoken word film. It's been filmed with Wild Bird, um, Graham Order from Wild Bird. He's based in Money. And um, we filmed them at RGU, and we, I'm reading the clothes that the Grey students made last term. And then I'm also going to have two of the Beth Coventry and Catherine McDonald, two of the students are working on um, a new dress that isn't in the film but will be in the exhibition space, which actually has one of the poems printed onto it. Oh, wow. Um, using calico, which is kind of like the material most designers use when they're in that in, designs, in between design stage. So um, I was kind of interested in that sense of, and working with students, I learned a lot about the parallels between poetry and fashion and collage again, like that sense of how where do you take your influences from? So I was working on newspaper texts and I'm reimagining them, in, in two or three of them, into new poems, but it's actually almost like verbatim in places, like almost how it was written in the newspaper article. And a lot of the time, you know, what's the line between appropriation and fashion when 
and, and originality and it's really hard for these students to I guess to think about how not, it's just as it's hard for a writer when you're mm-hmm. about someone's life how close is it to what someone's actually said and how much of it can you really spin on into something new um, so we, we using poetry heightens that in a way because it really removes it from the newspaper article but some of these fashion reviews from the 70s the, the, the writers that are poets like mm-hmm. the language the way they describe like I just can't imagine journalists doing this well mm-hmm. I mean I'm sure in Vogue and stuff they have mm-hmm. writers who are great and some of them are actually the same reviewers from the 60s and 70s who've just been so good at it that no one's touched them yeah um so yeah i think i've just come to really appreciate you know the creativity that's in journalistic writing or can be it's obviously not always Mm -hmm. um and how has collaboration shaped your practice then because you collaborated first with kate steenhauer for shelter and Mm -hmm. now you're collaborating with these students so do you think it's had sort of a wider impact on your approach yeah, I think so. And I think it's really making me question what I want to do going forward. Even with a novel, in a way, it's like, sometimes I think, is that a novel or is that a theatre project? You know, after I performed the spoken word poems, I thought this could work on stage. Like, taking different outfits and putting them on and reading a different poem and, and telling the story that way, it could work in that form. Or mm-hmm. it's, I, th- I guess I've realised over time that writing is, can be very lonely. It can be one of the most sort of isolated creative practices if you let it be. But for me, that's just never really... I mean, I'm not introverted. Um, I wish I was sometimes, because then I could no. write more. <laughs> <laughs> I could be shy. But, you know, I can't, yeah, I'm kidding. So uh, I, think, uh, I think I just like, I like to be around people. I, I think I get... I, I think, for me, ideas come out of dialogue with other people. Yeah, I think it's great to have time you don't want to think and really go deep thinking into something, but I just get through things quicker in conversation. My research is sped up by actually seeing students at work rather than reading about it in a book mm-hmm. and not really knowing how to visualise that. So it's just about, I guess, um, it's more fun. It's, it's more enjoyable. It's less depressing and doer than sitting on your own all winter. I think like, it keeps like, you going too, doesn't yeah. it? Like it gives you something sort of new, if not exciting to be mm-hmm. thinking about, even if it is the same project. Yeah. I think as well, the future of, I guess, how is this, how we interact? I mean, I, I, I sometimes just think like how impactful is prose? How much of an audience does it get to? Is it, you never really know who's read, who's read it, but it's mm-hmm. published in a literary magazine if anyone, there's sometimes you have that feeling like how impactful is it? Whereas if you work on a collaborative project, it's more it's more likely to generate an audience because you've got two different audiences already, mm-hmm. and you're bringing people to your work that wouldn't normally get to it, and vice versa. And I just think there's something in that that really excites me because I've just the older I'm getting, the more I realise you know how hard it is and energy wise to keep going with my creative practice on top of, you know, the other commitments we all have in life, like other work commitments and other things that happen. Mm-hmm. I think the more I'm aware of wanting, wanting to reach audiences and wanting to make it all worthwhile and not just feeling like I'm just doing it for me, I want it to be doing it for other people now mm-hmm. as well. So I think in, start, in, in going back to the development stage and actually bringing in other people, I think sets a good tone for that, that that will happen and that you, you will actually get an audience then so, and, and having the support like look again, the creative fund in Aberdeen, um, the fellowship, like those kind of things that are in place in Scotland and in Aberdeen that we're really lucky to have yeah. helps with that. 
but it's yeah, like I said, it doesn't you don't always get first time. You don't no. always, so don't give up to anyone who's <laughs> applying for anything who's been rejected recently because it's just a slog. <laughs> That's true. Um, I feel like the more you do it, too, the better at writing funding applications oh, you yeah. get. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm writing fun applications than I have at writing. Learn from your mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you excited for in the next sort of six months or 12 months? Um, in the next six months, I guess I'm really excited about the Look Again exhibition because... So what are the dates for that? That will be running... Primarily the 7th to 9th of June is the main weekend, okay. so it's a Friday to Sunday, but there will be an opening on the 6th, Thursday in the evening. And I think it might might be open a little bit after that for a while, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Um, but yeah, June the main, look at the festival weekend. So I guess just I'm excited to see how audiences respond to that. I think that'll really help me in shaping where to go with the next. Mm-hmm. Alongside that, I'm just really excited to get back into writing a bit more. I had my residency for the fellowship last November, and then since that time, I started a new job, and I've been the shelter kind of came along again to develop it further, and then the look again commissioning, like getting that right and you know rehearsing the poems and filming it and putting everything in place. It's been great because I wanted to do it, but it does mm-hmm. mean that you do have to put the larger project to the side a lot of the time. So. Yeah, I'm really excited to get back into it and decide what I'm doing with it because the last time I was thinking about the book I started to think is this two books because I've, I've written enough for a book's length but I'm not really halfway through the story yeah. yet so it's it's those kind of decisions um, that I'm excited to kind of make in the next few months 12 months in the next knows. year I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't actually plan that far ahead I think I probably I guess things luckily things have just kind of flown Flowed, that's the word, <laughs> uh, the last while. And also I do feel like I've, I've purposely started to say no to things recently and kind of calm things down because um, my part-time job ramps up as well. So it's getting that balance of like knowing how much you can really commit to things and travel and, you know, energy and focus. So, yeah, I'm just excited to get back to writing more, I guess. And uh, I guess... Um, the shelter, so I'm hoping more will come with that. We've been applying for some things. There's been talk of maybe doing it in Aberdeenshire and maybe doing more Aberdeenshire-influenced kind of version of the bus shelter place. So, it's been, yeah, more collaborations would be great. Um, I'd love to do something with folk in other cities and do something a bit wider. Mm-hmm. I've done that in the past with twinning projects and stuff, but it would be great to do more across Scotland at a national level rather than something that's kind of wider just because I feel like it could be more likely to actually be more hands-on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been meeting a lot more creatives across, after the Just Start Here Festival, which is what the National Theatre Scotland came to do for um, Shelter. I met a lot of folk in, probably out of other parts of the country. It's just always kind of really exciting to realise that there's parallels with what's happening and there's things that might, yeah, might be worth pursuing, but... I don't know, yeah. I don't plan a tenth plan too far. I don't have a five year plan, I'm not one of those people. Because, and I think if I was, I would just be constantly disappointed and annoyed yeah. in myself. So, yeah, finishing the book would be good. Yeah. Months, but, oh, God. Um, so, I know that you <clears throat> were planning to leave Aberdeen. You were like ready to leave mm. Aberdeen. You know, you quit your job, you went traveling, but mm. now you're back. You've got a new job that, you know, can be done from here. So,. Mm. What's that been like, feeling like you were packing your bags to go and then you're back again? 
I think I do it every three years. <laughs> <laughs> I do it. I mean, I, I felt like that before we did the shelter a couple of years ago. I, th I think it's just, I think, I don't think it's an Aberdeen thing. I think it's a me thing and also quite a common thing for folk who, if, if you work, if you work, if you're a creative person, you don't want to feel like you're scraping the barrel and you don't want to feel like you're outstage you're welcome, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess as well. So sometimes I think, oh God, like, I, I, um, I've been really lucky to be involved in so much, fest especially festivals wise and things. And I don't want it to feel like Groundhog Day for me or or audiences. Or, mm -hmm. um, but then I need to realise, like you know, as some people's careers do just stay in the same place and they can't grow. And they're not. It's not really repetitive. You've always got something new to offer yeah. work wise. But I don't want to like run creatively. Yeah, feel uninspired. Or I think I do travel a lot because of that sense of now I've been here for over twelve years. Like I do need new stimulus and. Mm -hmm. um, you have to fill up that well. Yeah, yeah. Every yeah. once in a while. So I think last year, you know, I, I was ready to move on in terms of my employed work, and then, but in a, in a good way, in a way, like I was like I, I'd been in the last, my last job for three years, and that's when I always thought I would probably either move up or or move up or like one of the two, one of the two, and then the the job I'm doing now it's for Art UK and it's um, taking sculptures into schools across Scotland. And Northern England and also working on public engagement project with sculptures and I, I just love working across art forms and so that's part time and I can do it from home apart from travelling so when I realised like and, and I have a look again commission and the shelter sometimes you think you're going to do something <laughs> although I was almost like quoted repulse do you go no I won't go but what you're going to do is it's basically that so yeah. I am um, yeah, I, just, I, had, I had all these ideas, and I, I think after getting the Phil show, I was quite excited because of going to France, thinking, you know, will I go travel for longer after, or will I do this, will I do that? And then the reality hits, it's like, you don't need to do those things to, to keep going, and um, I've loved the, the Public Again Commission working on that, and working on the shelter again, and I w it would have been a shame to not have taken those on, and to have just gone somewhere else to start from scratch again, mm -hmm. so... Just for the sake of it. Yeah, so we'll see. It's just, yeah, it's hard to know. But I think everyone now and again has those moments of totally. being like, oh, I need, to, I need to go somewhere else. And then, you know, it's just grass is greener syndrome a lot of the time. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, you did go to Canada. I can personally say that that was a good choice. Oh, yeah, so. obviously, yeah. <laughs> like two weeks later, they were, they were great. Um, right, so you've got some poetry yeah. for us. Mm -hmm. um, if you'd like to sort of give us a little intro to what we're going to hear and then <clears throat> and then give us a reading that would be yeah. great hopefully my throat will hold out um there's some like old bottled water <laughs> I know, I if you'd that like earlier. to that was here the last time i was in here so I may avoid. yeah I maybe don't <laughs> uh, so i'll read a couple of poems and these are from the build Gear project and uh, they're not on the look again uh festival so i've got six different poems in that but i, so I thought i just kind of shared some others from other parts of the project but these two will be published in Cosby magazine which is Aberdeen University's um, literary magazine so I'll publish in May and I'll hopefully be reading them at a May festival event as well but so they're both set in 1970 okay and one of them is it's been inspired by two fashion reviews one from the Sunday Times and one from British Folk and then the other one is based on an interview the evening standard so Ooh, this okay. is really when this kind of the first poem is about 
Gibbs Breakthrough Collection okay. when he, he won Designer of the Year, he won Dress of the Year, um, all these kind of things that really kicked off. And it was just at the start of 1970s. And it was just like his work suddenly defined the decade just in that moment, following on from sort of the hippie um, years at the end of the, the 1960s. So <clears throat> this I, I've not really got a title title for the show. It's called, okay. I think I would, I would call it Glorious Confusion. Okay. The title, but it's, it's a good title. Right now, it's... Um, British Vogue, January 1970. Okay. The most boring. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to put on my M&S, um, Anna Wintour voice. Okay. <laughs> so. <clears throat> Whatever the hippies have done, they have given you freedom to fashion. Exclusive to Fortnum and Mason, Bill Gibbs' latest collection is a great rainbow garden. A patchwork of earthly patterns. On this page, what happy anarchy. A floaty flower printed blouse, an intarsia knitted waistcoat. Above a sweeping skirt of tartan pleats, a muted shades of blue and green, bordered by further flower power. Below, rebel in a check polo neck, and matching shooting jacket, edged with cream and cobalt blue. Or opposite, Shock and a tartan smock and feral jumper tied together by a scarf fringed with rust and beige. Next page, a magpie assemblage, a caramel suede maxi under a coat of soft chamois, trumpet sleeved with leather thongs and Indian beads strung together to decorate its tiny bodice medieval shape. Make ready for this new decade of organised fashion anarchy and multi-pattern fusions tailored in glorious confusion. I really see what you mean about that language. Mm. It works really well in that form. Mm. Yeah. It, it took a while to get that one to sit right on the page. Um, and so The sounds are really, yeah. really good. Yeah, I love it. There's just, yeah, there's a nice kind of onomatopoeic mm -hmm. aspect to the to what's there already and I love to play with that in Doric when I write Doric poetry so to mm -hmm. realise that you know that fashion language has this richness to it as well and what I love about the language as well is for fashion is it's from it's it's obviously from all over you know it, it, you've got like tartan from Scotland and you've mm -hmm. got um, all these Italian and French like kind of pretty words yeah. <laughs> that I don't usually get to play with because <laughs> I'm being Doric so um, <laughs> Which is beautiful in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this next one is a bit more verbatim. It's a bit more close to what okay. how it was written. And it's just more about where I've broken the, the line. Um, so it's a shame you can't see the poem in a way. But I'll try and read it with kind of that break so you get a sense of of the flow of it. And okay. um, So this is called Odyssey at Fortnum and Mason, 181 Piccadilly, 28th of November, 1970. <laughs> so just later in the same year. Anne Knight, the merchandise director of Fortnum & Mason, a blonde robust woman in black knickerbockers, weighs her words like a judge. There's a revolution going on. We are marching towards an anonymous machine age. The human being will have to assert himself and shout out his individuality. More and more, people are looking for beautiful fantasy clothes. Big 
Bill Gibb fell in love with a tapestry furnishing fabric and from it fashioned his latest fantasy collection. His dresses are masterpieces. Like rich costumes from a Renaissance painting, they are made of a collage of contrasting fabrics. Embroidered velvet, satin and jersey, banded in fur and edged with ecclesiastical braid. They are timeless, modern classics which own nothing to fashion but stand alone. They are collected like antiques by connoisseurs who prize them as treasures as well as clothes. Who buys them? His customer list reads like to Brett. They suit any age provided you have the courage to carry them off. Fantasy has no limits as long as you can afford to dream. Lovely. Yeah, courage to carry it off. <laughs> I like that line. Um, so yeah, I've not quite developed the voices for those ones yet, but mm-hmm. the other the six I'm doing for Look Again, I have like an American accent, which probably is okay. the Yeah. Um, a posh male reviewer, a posh female reviewer. I've got Bill Gibb himself. Yeah. So yeah, I'm kind of kind of with like I do with the shelter. So is the idea thing. that although these ones will be in Causeway first off, that they will be performed at some point as well? Yeah, I'd like to perform at the May Festival and. I would, yeah, also it would be great to do something with all of the poems mm-hmm. in a performative way. But it's, I just, it's, it's nice to have them now because mm-hmm. I think, especially when I'm reading the spoken word scene, is I, I mean I've just been along to a few events recently, and it's just really, you know, really been really impressed with with uh, what's happening there. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's always tough to be more on the prose side of things because prose is harder to win audiences over yeah. and to be performative with so to have just a bit more poetry under my belt even though I don't quite see them as poems either they're kind of their own weird things because mm-hmm. um, they're more narrative and, they're, and there's one of the poems in the Look Again um, commission that does feel like a poem poem and it's, it's a lot more removed from the text mm-hmm. to allow that to happen, the, the source text so yeah, yeah I, th- I kind of um I would love to do something with them all, and there's there's probably another eight that I've got drafted, but I'd love to try and do one for every single collection. Yeah. Um, and I would hope that that could be part of the book, but, you know, you never know. I could go to a publisher who might like the prose aspect and just be like, there should not be poetry in this. Yeah. Readers will not like this. Or vice versa. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's always a risk, but it's one that I'm enjoying taking right now. So Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hardly feels like it's been nearly 38 minutes, actually. So well done, us. Um, And uh, yeah, best of luck with Look Again and with the May Festival. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast another time. Thanks for having me. Okay.